Well, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to Science Sundays. Uh, I'm your host, Sean Downey, uh, and I want to talk today about science. Science matters. Uh, science matters for scientists who want to know the most recent developments at research frontiers, but it also matters for us, the public. The Sunday Science event is in its ninth year, and it's the flagship lecture series of the College of Arts, Arts and Sciences at Ohio State University. We share the cutting-edge work of researchers at o OSU and from around the world once a month, and you can see past Sunday Science Talks on YouTube at any time. I'm thrilled today to have the opportunity to introduce you to Associate Professor Barbara Piperata from the Department of Anthropology here at OSU. She's an anthropologist with research in numerous journal articles in nutrition and food security, poverty, and mental health. Anthropologists are favorite, uh, famous excuse me, for uh, international field sites, and Barbara lived in the Brazilian Amazon for two years in order to research female nutrition and child rearing. She's also conducted research in Cameroon and Nicaragua. Her current project is funded by the National Science Foundation, and it's exploring how human culture shapes infant gut microbiomes in Brazil. Before I get uh, started and introduce her, uh, I have a few de details about the talk I'd like to share. First, this is being recorded, and it will be posted on YouTube later on, so we ask that you hold your questions until the end, when she'll be happy to take them. Second, if you're interested in uh, getting email alerts about upcoming talks, please join our email list, which is online. And third, uh, I invite you all to join us for a reception after the talk. And so with that, please join me in welcoming Barbara Piperata. Thank you, Sean. Uh, Sean's one of our newest, oh, now it's working, the mic. Look at that. Um, Sean's one of our newest faculty, and it's been thrilling to have him on campus and start to work with him. So uh, thank you for the nice introduction. We've got some feedback here. We'll figure this out. Um, so welcome today, uh, and thank you all for coming out on a beautiful Sunday and also Super Bowl Sunday. So I really appreciate it. I really thought I'd be have just crickets. So I'm thrilled that you all came out, and um, I hope that I uh, provide you with a both entertaining and um, meaningful presentation today. So I'm Barb Piperata. I am, as he said, an associate professor in the anthropology department. And today I'm going to talk about the research that I've been doing in Nicaragua with colleagues on campus and colleagues in Nicaragua on food security. And, and today I'm going to focus on a particular health outcome of mental health, although you can look at many different ways in which food security or food insecurity undermines people's well-being. But today I'm going to focus on uh, mental well-being. So for those of you who are thinking anthro, I kind of know what that is, or maybe I'm not real sure what those people do in anthropology, I've heard the term. I thought I would let you see where I fit in in the tree of anthropology. Um, so anthropology is the science of humanity. We study all aspects of people um, from human origins, so human evolution, um, the physical and cultural development of peoples, um, and I'm very interested in that as a biological anthropologist, people's biological characteristics, social customs and beliefs. And when I talk today, we're going to see how a lot of this kind of comes together to understand the ways in which food insecurity interacts with people's mental well-being and why this perspective um, is, is a useful one on um, this kind of holistic approach. So anthro includes cultural anthropology, archaeology, linguistics, and biological anthropology. I'm trained as a biological anthropologist. Um, and then within biological anthropology, there are those who study non-human primates. Um, and then there's those who study the human primate, and I'm one of those, so I am a human biologist. Um, and then there's those who study those humans that are skeletal remains now, and those that study the ones that are still running around like us, and I'm the one that studies the ones still working around, running around like us. So that makes me a biological anthropologist, sure, but one that has to engage a lot with cultural anthropology because culture shapes so much of what we do. Um, and so much of the way in which we interact with our environment, and I'm very interested in how our interactions with the environment, both the social, physical, biological aspects of the environment, shape who we are. So uh, that was just to kind of give you a sense of where I'm coming from when I speak about this topic. So I've done research in a variety of different places um, on different uh, subjects, and they seem somewhat disparate, but they all are connected to understanding health, and there's a particular nutritional um, path that runs through all of this work. So my earliest work was done in the Brazilian Amazon. I lived there, as, as Sean was saying, for two years studying uh, breastfeeding. 
and understanding how women accommodate the additional demands that breast milk production puts on a woman's body, which is five to 700 calories a day. Um, so I wanted to understand how they did that both biologically and socially. So that was the first project that I did. That was my, my dissertation research. And then um, by continuing to work in the Amazon and over a period of time, I started documenting uh, very radical dietary changes that were going on, some of which were tied to a new government program called Bolsa Familia, which is a uh, poverty alleviation program. And so I started a project on that. And I was here at OSU by the time I had initiated this project. And so OSU graduate and undergraduate students came to the field with me for three months um, to the Brazilian Amazon. And we collected data to track the, the functioning of that program in a very rural area, which had not been studied. It had been studied well in urban areas, but not so much in, in rural places. So I worked on that project. And then, um, as Sean was saying, I've recent work has moved into water insecurity and looking at how people in context of water insecurity uh, manage that access and then the impact that it has, particularly pathogens in water, in shaping infants' gut microbiome during the first two years of life. And that's an important period because succession of that ecological community in the gut during that period of time has long-lasting effects for um, our, our health and well-being well into adulthood. And so uh, that's the new uh, NSF project. But today, I'm going to talk about work that I've done here on, uh, with, with uh, colleagues here um, on food insecurity in Nicaragua. So I've been to mostly Brazil and Nicaragua is where I work, but I have collaborated with folks um, working in Cameroon and some other places. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. So the perspective that I'll use today, um, and I, I'll pull this back, this slide will come back um, towards the middle and the end of the talk. Um, is to kind of give you a, a framework for the way that I think about uh, how I understand people and their well-being. So important is that anthropologists, so when we think about food security, and I'm going to ask you about that in a second, um, it's a big issue, and it has a lot of components to it. Um, but as an anthropologist, I do very grounded work. So I live with people. I stay in those communities for long periods of time, and I get to understand sort of what their beliefs, their values, their goals and norms are, and their customs. And so how those sorts of beliefs and values um, shape their, the way in which they interact with the environment, their expectations, their behaviors. But I also need to understand how things in their, in their broader environment that are not so cultural, like their ecology, because that dictates what foods are available sometimes, and their economy, because for most of the world, they access food through money. Um, it's not that they're growing their food directly anymore, but they're purchasing it with money that they get in wage labor that they do in other types of work. Um, and then what their household structure is, what kind of access to the markets they have, and so on and so forth. So when I talk today, we're going to be looking at components that are coming from both, both sides here. And then I want to look at, I call this kind of like an eco-cultural approach, and there are others that write about this as well, um, where we bring in the, the ecological and the cultural and look at how they interact to shape people's everyday lives and then how that shapes their health. So that's the framework that I'll use throughout this talk. So here's my question to you is, when you hear the term food insecurity, what comes to your mind? And I will tell you now, the light is very bright, so I can't see you very well. So you'll just have to yell something out at me. Um, so when you hear that, what comes to your mind? Not knowing where the next meal comes from. Okay. Malnutrition. Malnutrition, not knowing where your next meal's coming from. Anybody else want to throw something out? Like I said, I can't see you. Lack Lack of nutritious food. Drought. Drought. Corruption. Corruption. <laughs> Contamination. Contamination. Okay. So you've given me a wide range of things, and we could probably go on for another five minutes uh, listing things, because it's a big topic. And that's the reason why I asked this question, is that food security is a complex problem. And it's going to solve it is going to require all hands on deck. It is a multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary, whichever of those terms you prefer. It's going to take a lot of different kinds of science to come to the table to address this issue. I am an anthropologist. I am very interested in understanding people and their lived experience. And I have a particular passion for understanding women. I feel like women are take on the brunt of a lot of issues and are often ignored. Sometimes they're really seen as just through the lens of being a mother. And then other than that, they're not really kind of front and center. And yet they, they bear a huge burden here when it comes to food security. Women still grow the majority um, of food in, in more traditional uh, economies. And yet they're often the ones that get the least amount of food. So I'm very interested in women's lived experiences. And that's what I'm going to focus on today is that really uh, 
kind of small scale uh, individual experience. So food security has a definition that we all use, those of us who study it. The Food and Agricultural Organization defines being food secure as a situation that exists when all people at all times have physical and economic access to sufficient, safe, and nutritious food that meets their dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy life. So, so many of the things that you guys yelled out, right, that you uh, volunteered are encapsulated in this definition, right? Um, and when we study food security, well, we think about it as today, the most updated model, thinks about it as four pillars. There's physical availability of food. Are we growing enough food to feed people? Um, there's stability of that food supply, because you can imagine that either some severe weather event or some sort of political unrest could make it so that you can't actually deliver food. Or you even have in some more subsistence-based populations um, food that is grown on an annual basis so that you have plenty during the time of harvest, and then those, those food stocks dwindle over that course of the year, and you get to a period of the, the lean times before the next harvest comes in. So there's a, a lot of different aspects of stability. And then there's food utilization, which is a very interesting one. It captures a lot of things from um, the kinds of foods we choose, how we prepare them in, to, when we cook them, when we prepare them, um, to the way we distribute food within a household, um, to the biological, the biochemistry of what actually happens in your body when you eat food and if you're able to make, take full advantage of the nutrients that you put in your body. So for example, children who are uh, infected with pathogens can call, they can get something called a leaky gut, for example, and that will cause them to, you can eat, but you're not able to absorb nutrients efficiently because you're losing some of them. So that could be encapsulated underneath utilization as well. I am going to focus on this aspect of it, which is economic and physical access and how that experience is shaping women's well-being, particularly their mental health, okay? Um, so here it's pretty straightforward. It's do you have the means to get access to the food that is out there and available because we do have enough food, but unfortunately not everybody can get access to it. So this is extraordinarily important and this certainly um, brings us right back to Columbus, Ohio where there's no shortage of food, but there are plenty of people who do not have access to it. And um, I'll come back to that at the end of the talk. So um, in terms of the reason why I'm interested in food as an anthropologist that there's, and, and particularly at this moment, is that food insecurity is actually on the rise. So for a couple of decades, we were making very good progress towards minimizing. So we were actually watching global figures go down in terms of the number of food insecure in the world. When we got to 2015, we saw something change. We didn't see the continued downturn, and now we're actually in an uptick. So we're actually seeing an increased number of people suffering from food insecurity. Now, in this particular uh, graphic, the green represents those who are food secure. And that's defined in a very basic way here as those who have sufficient quantity and quality of food to meet their needs. Moderate food insecurity are households, this is usually measured on the household <coughs> level, although some of the measurements that they, we measure food security in so many different ways, it becomes a very complex, uh, it's a very complex topic for that reason. But at the household level, this would be households where there's worry. Um, and that individuals are making um, decisions in that home to deal with the fact that they don't have a sufficient amount of food. So you'll see people reduce the quality of foods that they purchase. Um, so they might not buy the dietary variety that they may want to and they might buy more basic staple foods in order to have enough to fill bellies but not necessarily the foods they want um, or the most nutritious foods. Or you see actually declines in the quantity of food so they'll skip meals or they'll reduce the portion size of those meals from what would be a normal pattern of consumption. So that is 1.3 billion people who are in that condition. And then at the severe level here, it, th these are households where you've run out of food and you can go days without eating anything that would be considered a meal. And that's 822 million people, okay? So if we take that together, we're talking about two billion people on this planet, or 26% of the global population. So this is why this topic is important, because it affects a quarter of the world. Now, when we think about where those two billion people live, we find that most of them are in what we call the global south. Okay, they're in um, less developed countries. That does not mean we don't have food security here. And again, I'm gonna come back to this at the end of the talk. Um, and 
this is a map that's a very recent hunger map. So this is very severe food insecurity. And so the, the countries are coded by the level of, of undernutrition in children. And here we see that you know, the, the more red you get, the more severe the situation is. Now, we see the worst situation certainly um, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. But we have pockets in other parts of the world as well. And Haiti is classically one of the, most, the places that has some of the most severe food insecurity. We're going to be focusing our attention in this part of the world today in Nicaragua, which is in this orange color. So that corresponds down here to about 15 to 25 percent um, of children who are suffering from malnutrition by this measure on this map. And in general, I want to draw attention to the fact that when we look at the food insecure, those people who are living under these conditions, women and children are at greatest risk. And that's for two reasons. Um, there's the biological side of this equation and the cultural side of this equation. Biologically, women need more calories, um, so more nutritious, well, they need both more nutritious food, in other words, they need a, a large amount of vitamins and minerals, as well as the calories, right, and the macronutrients, the protein, the carbohydrates, the fats, because of their reproductive efforts. So pregnancy and lactation, breastfeeding, increase women's uh, nutritional demands. So that makes them vulnerable when there's not enough food, they, they can slip below the line of getting enough because they need extra, they need more. Um, and we often don't think about that because we think, well, they're smaller bodied, but they have these additional needs. And then children, they can't just eat anything. Um, during growth and development, they have pretty high caloric needs, quite amazingly high caloric needs. And if they don't get the right, uh, they don't get enough energy and the right nutrients, they won't grow, okay? And so the other problem that we have with kids is that they have small stomachs. And if you feed them filler or bulky kinds of foods, just those dietary staples, they'll fill up and they won't be interested in eating anymore, but they didn't get what they actually needed. And so they need very specific foods. So nutritious food is particularly important here because they have such small stomachs and then such high needs. And then culturally they're vulnerable because socially women and children usually have lower social standing in households. So when there is not enough food, food is divvied up usually to males first and then to, to children and then finally to women, okay? And I'll come back to this a little bit later on. So the other reason why this is a problem from the perspective of this talk today is that um, food insecurity is rampant, but now we know that it also undermines health. And it does so in a myriad ways. Um, inadequate uh, intake of nutrients, as you all know, will cause malnutrition, which will have impacts for both children's and, children and adults. Okay, so you won't have full functioning body if you don't have the right kinds of nutrients. And children won't be able to grow. Um, it puts us at increased risk for chronic disease. This is particularly meaningful in the United States where people's food insecurity is often experienced by having enough to eat in terms of calories, but they eat a lot, they'll eat, they can almost overconsume calories but not get the right nutrients. In fact, this country is plagued with malnutrition um, because we don't get the right micronutrients in the diet even though there's sufficient calories. And what we get is then the association between food insecurity and obesity. Um, and that is plaguing both children and adults in very developed settings like the United States. So it cause, it's related then with chronic disease development later in life. It also has increased risks for pregnant women. As I just mentioned, they have higher, they have higher needs. Um, but this is something that then affects the growth of the embryo and the fetus, which then can have long-lasting effects for that individual. Okay, so we know that this is a problem. Then we know that children who don't have enough food have problems not only with their physical growth, but with their mental capacity, their mental ability, their cognitive capacity. And so they're unable to learn in some cases, or they'll go to school and be underfed and therefore not be able to pay attention and to make the most of the education that we have. So this is another problem. And then the problem that I'm going to focus on here is that we now know that there's, there are correlative studies that are, have been done in a variety of places now showing that, that, an in, that, that food insecurity is associated with increased risk of mental disease. And we see that in, especially in terms of depression, suicidal uh, ideation, um, and substance abuse, and anxiety. And I'm going to really focus there particularly on depression and anxiety. So that brings me to why do we care about this part of it when these other things all seem terrible as well. There's lots of people working on this and we've been working on this for a while and we know that this exists and this is a little bit of a newer area um, that we haven't been paying as much attention to. But I think these things all overlap. It's very difficult to separate these out. Um, but there's another reason for that. Common mental disorders 
Anxiety, depression is the second leading cause of disability among adults in the world. So it's a problem. And unfortunately, among women, it's the leading cause of disability, which means it is undermining their ability. If we, if we look at it even beyond, you know, morally, that's something we should be concerned about, okay? But if we want to look at it through a very uh, practical and economic lens, people who are not doing well mentally are not as productive. They cannot build society. They cannot run their households. They cannot contribute to building community, homes, raising children, and all of the things that go along with having good mental health. So this is another problem. So today we're focusing on those two things, food security because it's increasing and it, globally it is affecting a quarter of the world. And we're going to look, talk about mental health because it is a leading cause of disability globally. Our site for this talk today is going to be in Nicaragua. So I started this work in Nicaragua with a colleague in sociology, Dr. Kami Shmir, um, and we've been working together on this since 2012. Um, so we uh, went down in 2012 and started the work, and we've continued to work down there on this issue since that period of time. We've expanded out. Um, during that time, we have gone down uh, numerous years, and we've brought undergraduate and graduate students uh, from Ohio State down. They've spent significant time on the grounds, uh, entire summers collecting data in rural and in urban environments. Um, they've used these data for uh, master's theses, for honors theses presented their data at uh, Denman, which is a research forum that we have here for undergraduates. So we've used this as an opportunity to train the next generation on how to work on socially meaningful problems and to do it in a holistic way, to bring together the social and the natural sciences. We collaborate with folks on the ground that are in medicine and nutrition that work in, in Nicaragua. And so we come together as a team to uh, look at ways in which we can not just collect quality data on this issue, but to utilize that data to help make a difference. And so um, this has been a very productive partnership, um, and it's, it's been great to be able to bring students to a place to do uh, such important work. So the research questions that we've had um, are, are these. So the first is, is food insecurity associated with poor mental health among Nicaraguan mothers? Now I'll kind of tell you that the answer is yes, and I'm going to show you that. But that wasn't surprising to me. In fact, if I would have found that it wasn't, I would have wondered, what did I do wrong in the study? But uh, we're going to go through exactly what I did and how, how we know these things. Um, but another question that we had was, does social support influence this relationship? And the reason why we asked this is that there's a lot of data out there indicating that social support should be a buffer for a lot of ways in which it, should be a buffer to having poor mental health. So if you have a good support network, you're supposed to have better mental health. So we were curious, if you had social support that could help you with food security, would it serve as a buffer in terms of how food insecurity affected your mental well-being? Would it intervene there and, and provide some kind of like block? And so it would, your mental health wouldn't be as affected if you had good social support. So this is um, what we explored. And then the second question is, how does food insecurity, if it does, First question. Second question is, how does food insecurity undermine maternal mental health? So this is the pathways. And to get at this, correlation is not going to do it, because that's not going to tell me what is really happening. So here's where the anthro hat has to come on. And here's where the grounded ethnographic work of talking to women and being around and observing what's going on is going to give me clues as to what are these pathways. And these are important to understand because they can have huge implications for the kinds of policies that are going to not only improve food security potentially, but do so in a way that also could improve mental health. And so this is why a, like a mixed methods approach is powerful here. So that's the kind of approach we use in this research, and that's why we need a team that comes from multiple disciplines so we can bring that expertise together and build a study that is as holistic as we can, as we can make it to address such a complicated problem. So, Location of the research in Nicaragua, as I've said numerous times now. Um, that's the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Haiti is the only poorer country. Um, and it has a high degree of income inequality. Gini coefficient is one of the measures of, in, is, a, is a measure of income inequality. And for reference, so it's 47. Um, for reference, the United States is 42, another very unequal country, okay? Um, a one would be that only one person has all the money. Okay, and a zero would be that, every, that you take all the money and we distribute it evenly amongst all people. So this kind of gives you a perspective of where we are. Okay? Um, so a very unequal uh, sort of setting. Located in Central America, and in particular, we did our work in Leon, 
which is, so, so if you look at these lines here on the map, we're looking at the departments, which are basically like US states, so the equivalent of a US state. Um, so Nicaragua has a number of different departments. Some are very large that are on the Atlantic coast of the country and are the least populated. Most of the population lives here on the Pacific side. And this is the Department of Leon. And we did our work in the city of Leon, which is in the Department of Leon. So I don't want to be, cause any confusion with that. So these are some photographs of the city of Leon to give you a what it looks like there. Um, it's the second largest city in the country. Um, Managua, which is the capital, is the largest city. Um, it has about two, I think the latest data are 206,000 people. Um, so it's not a huge city by any standard. We can find cities that have millions of people. But for Nicaragua, which is a ra rather small country, um, 200,000 people is a, is a big city. Um, it's also the home of the oldest and uh, the most prestigious university in the country. And we worked with faculty there on this project. We worked um, in what we called urban and rural zones, but actually they're more peri-urban. And in both cases, what we're dealing with are places where there is plenty of food available. There is no shortage of food. It's everywhere you look. You cannot walk down a street without someone selling food. You can't get in front of a church and find all kinds of vendors set up selling food. You, there are supermarkets. There are open-air markets. There is food everywhere, OK? Um, and in these peri-urban zones, um, access still is a problem in the sense that while they do practice some agriculture, it's very small scale. And I'm going to come back to this in a second to talk about why that is. So in both cases, these are people, whether they're living in what looks like a bit more of a rural environment and certainly an urban environment here, are all reliant on cash that they get through some form of wage labor to purchase their food. So access is the key here in terms of being able to get food. It's not about availability, it's access. So in order to answer those research questions, we had to collect a bunch of different types of data. So we worked, um, we, we, we very strategically used a database that was available us, to us because of our uh, colleagues in Leon's uh, long-term research since the early 90s. They have 11,000 household sample that they've been monitoring for demographic changes since the early 1990s. Um, and we were able to use that to randomly select 500 households. The 400, the data that I'm going to talk about today, some of it comes from 434 of those households because some of those households were missing data and so I'm only including the households from which we were able to get the full array of data that we used to, to, to answer these questions. In those households, we conducted a large survey and that survey included information on food security. Now, the instrument that we used is considered to be a perceived food security instrument. That means that it's asking you about your experience, okay? And the one that we used um, is the shorthand for it is called ELCSA. It's the Latin American and Caribbean Food Security Scale. Um, and it has 15 questions on it, the, just to give you an idea of what those questions are like. The first question is, do you ever worry about running out of food um, or not having enough money to purchase food um, that you're going to run out? So that seems like a, you know, it's not necessarily happened, but you're concerned that it might happen. That's question number one. Then the questions begin asking about making changes to your household's food, like not buying different foods and not feeling like you have safe or a, a, a varied diet or a quality diet, because you're making adjustments because of inability to buy the foods that you need. Then the questions move on to start asking about strategies that reduce the volume of food that people consume. And they begin with asking about adults in the household. Did you cut back your portions? Did you skip a meal? And they keep getting more and more severe until we move into the final questions um, on the list. And those are about children who are under 18 in the household. And they start with, has that child's portion sizes been reduced? Has that child had to skip a meal? And then the very last question, number 15, is has the child gone a full day without being able to eat? Okay. To understand women's mental health, we uh, administered a questionnaire called the SRQ20. It's 20 questions. That's where the 20 comes from. And it asks a lot about uh, things that map onto anxiety and depression. So we can use it as a measure of mental well-being, especially in this area of anxiety and depression. Okay? And these questions range from physical symptoms like trembling and nervousness um, to very severe things like suicidal ideation okay? um, or feeling worthless or feeling like you, you don't matter. Um, so, all of that, so those are encompassed in this questionnaire to give you a sense of what we were talking to women about. And then we asked women about their social support as part of this questionnaire. Um, we asked them about their social network. We had 13 different questions that we asked about people they could lean on 
um, places they could go for assistance. So that was encapsulated in 13 questions. And then we asked them if they lived with or had their parental support available to them nearby, that they could lean on a parent. Um, could they count on their parents? Um, and then we asked about spousal support, which we wound up coding here, and we can come back to that. I'm happy to answer questions about it later on, too, which in this particular study we deal with, is the spouse present um, in the home? And this, uh, again, we can come back and talk about that. And then we complemented the survey data with participant observation, which is bread and butter of anthro, which is where we hang out. Um, we spend days with people. Um, I go to the market with women. I'm there preparing food with them. I see how they prepare food. I see the choices that they're making. When we're in the marketplace, I see what's available. I see what they're choosing. I can ask questions about that. Um, I see how children are behaving. I hear what children are asking for. So I'm able to understand those experiences by being around. Um, and so we would spend significant amounts of time in the field that would allow us to, to have these experiences and to interact pe with people in these ways so that we could understand um, that everyday lived experience. And then finally, what we did was six focus groups. Um, so these are discussion groups. Um, together amongst the six of them, we had 45 women. Um, and three of these were done in the peri-urban communities, and three of them were done in the urban communities. And we would sit and talk about what food security means for women, what their experiences are, how it makes them feel. Uh, and so we would, it was a kind of prodding question, so I had a whole two-page list of things that I wanted to ask about, but I would let the conversation evolve organically and let women talk and have a voice and tell me what they thought I should know about those things rather than me always think that I knew what I thought I needed to know about what they were doing, okay? So again, we come back here um, to this sort of graphic just to say that these data that we collected are then allowing us to gather information about the cultural context and to gather information about the economic, educational, and demographic context in which these women are living in order to understand this particular health, come with health outcome, which is mental health in this particular case, okay? So, oh, actually, I wanted to say something here. So, let me make a couple of comments here about the cultural context. Um, in our focus group discussions, as well as in my participant observation, I learned a lot of things about expectations and cultural ideals for women. Women take their job as mothers very seriously. And nothing I'm going to actually say to you is going to sound strange, because it's kind of what women think here, too. Um, but their roles in Nicaragua are a little bit more circumscribed than here. Oh, wow. OK. <laughs> They're a little bit more circumscribed than here. So. Um, what I learned is that women's primary role is to be, goal is to be a mother and to do a good job at being a mother means to take care of children and to give them the things that they need and not something, nothing more essential than feeding them um, and to be able to provide them with the things that they ask for, okay? Um, that's their social role that's so important. Um, I also learned that you know, they are expected to upkeep the house even if they're working outside the house, okay? And they have that dual responsibility. And sometimes men help, but oftentimes they don't. So they have that role as well as bringing in some money from the, from the market. Um, and these value, women who fail at reaching those goals are, are, feel bad about themselves. And that's important because if we're going to understand their mental health, this, this, this piece becomes important. And in terms of their economic situation, this slide kind of encompasses that, and I'm going to start to move a little bit faster here. So um, the women who I, we worked with, 40% of them, uh, greater than 40% of them, worked in the informal economy. That means that they didn't have a job that had a, a paycheck all of the time. They went out into the streets and sold things. They made stuff in their house and sold things. So every day the income could be different. So it's a very unstable source of income. Other women in our sample worked in the free trade zone in what are called maquiladoras. These are places that have relatively low wages, very long hours, and um, women would often have to get up at four in the morning to start burning wood to cook beans and rice so that they could leave food for their children so they could get on a bus to get out to a maquiladora where they'd work until about six o'clock at night and then get home at around eight o'clock so their children were left alone for most of the day while they were doing um, this kind of work. This kind of work is very much limited to young women, and women were very nervous about losing their job all of the time. So there was very little security, even, in, even amongst women who had a job. Um, in 35% of the households that we worked in, women were earning the most money of any member of that household. So these households really depend on these women's labor. It's not like they can just say, well, this is extra. This is not extra income. This is 
core income for the household. And in agricultural areas, people were not producing a lot of food to consume because that food, um, because this, these lands over time have been, become more and more concentrated in the hands of very few people, and now they're all commercialized crops. They used to grow cotton, now they grow peanuts. This all goes into the market. There's very little that's being grown that actually people are consuming. And in many cases, people just work on someone else's land, can grow a small plot of, say, corn, and then be able to eat that, but most of the time they're helping grow those commercial crops that are going to be sold and that they have no access to. So these are very precarious situations, even in those more rural environments. So the average age of the women in our sample was 31. Third, only 35% of them had um, higher than an, a, an, an elementary school education, so education is a real issue here. Um, the average number of children that were in their care, and I say it this way because some of them were taking care of other people's children as well as their own biological children, um, was 3.2. 79% of them were married or cohabitating. 53% of them lived in a parental extended household, so they had their parents around every day. Um, and in terms of those 13 questions we asked about their social support network, their average score here was 10, which tells you that women were saying they had a lot of social support, okay? So now let's look at how that maps onto food security. So quickly, just to make this simple, if these are those 15 questions, if you said no to all of them, then you're food secure, and that was 25% of the sample. If you answered yes to one to five of them, then you were low food insecurity, okay? And these are the more worrying and making qualitative adjustments to the diet. So potential micronutrient <coughs> issues going on here, okay? And then if you get to six, then we're talking about the reduction in the quantity of foods that are being consumed by both adults and by children, okay? And that's another 25% of the sample. So 75% of the households that we um, interviewed, those 400 plus households, were food insecure. Here's the answers to the, the distribution of the answers to the SRQ20, which is women's mental health. So a zero, again, would be that they said no to all of them, and then this is just the accumulated number where we actually had some women say yes to all of them, okay? Um, the average and the, the mean here, the mean and the median here are both about five, okay? <clears throat> so let's start with the data. Is food insecurity associated with poor maternal mental health? Yes. Not surprising. Mothers in households that were mildly food insecure had a 42% higher rate of mental distress than those women who lived in households where they were food secure. But mothers who lived in households that were moderately or severe, you know, that's six and up, two times the rate, okay, of anxiety and depression. Their, their score was two times, okay? So, we know that the answer to this question, which seems like an obvious question, um, is yes. We de food insecurity is undermining women's mental health. But does social support help? So we looked at three kinds of social support, as I told you, their network, their spouse, and their parents. So the question is, do these people help them buffer the, the effect of this? So instrumental support would be, I give you money to buy food, or I give you food. It's actually something tangible that I give you to help you ameliorate this problem. Informational support would be, I give you some tips about how you might stretch food um, or ways in which to deal with your food insecurity. Information you can use to ameliorate your situation. And then the last one is emotional support, that I'm there to listen to you about your concerns and about your worries and to demonstrate empathy so that you feel as though you have someone you can talk to. These are the three kinds of social support that we thought would help potentially act as a buffer. So the question is, does it? Um, and, and where does it come from? So the first one we looked at was social network. Does having a bigger social network, um, as the women reported, buffer them, buffer the impact of food insecurity on their mental health? So we did find that women who had higher social support um, had less mental distress. So it's good to have social network, it's good. No one would probably think that that's strange. However, there was no evidence that having a good social network act as a, acted as a buffer here in this model. And we did this with you know, some fancy regression models to, to look at this relationship. So social support network does not seem to help. We'll come back to that. What about the spouse? No evidence that a spouse or partner in the home moderated the relationship between food insecurity and mental distress, and the ethnography helps us understand this. 
Um, spousal help, help, I would say, may be limited to instrumental support. So these are things the women tell me now. He gives me the money, that's instrumental support, and from it I have the things that we, I have to buy the things that we need. But he doesn't go with her to the market. He doesn't see what it's like to have to stretch that money he gives her. He just gives her the money and then she's there to solve the problem. So in that way, he's not helping really buffering and that instrumental support is not having as much of a positive effect on mental health or it's not acting as much of a buffer. Um, maybe because the emotional support is not with it. And then some women would often say, he only arrives to eat. He comes in, he eats, and he leaves, okay? So he doesn't know what my experience is like with children crying during the day and needing food and Mimi not being able to do it. So then the last one is parents. Do parents play a role? Do they buffer? And the answer is yes. They had a large and significant effect, both for mild and moderate severe food insecurity. So if women had parents in the household or very close by where they saw themselves as an extended household, then we saw that this actually served as a, as a buffer. So these women, if we look into the literature, would be considered fortunate individuals. Um, there's a very interesting article about this. And that's because the women tell us, family's the most appropriate source of help. And one of the women's quotes are, if we need something, they consider our needs because we are, are their children. They are the, because we are their children. They are the only ones that can give us, give us a hand. So fortunate individuals are people who can provide you with, say, that instrumental and informational support because maybe they get it, right? They understand the situation that you're in, okay? And the informational support is, you know, your mom's telling you, here's what you can do. You can mix this with this, or you can extend this by doing this. But on top of being able to give you that very tangible help, she also is gonna be there for you when you need her emotionally. And that combination is what women were able to rely on. And that's why we think that this particular form of social support was the most powerful in, these, in this model here. So now I want to talk a little bit about the ethnography in the last minutes that I have you here, because I think we learn a lot by doing this qualitative work to complement uh, the, uh, the, the survey work that we had. So in this, these data come from the six focus groups where we ask women about their experiences. And when I say a theme, this means that I analyzed the transcripts from those and I went through and I found common things that women talked about that were able to help educate me as to what their experience was so that I can understand how food insecurity is undermining their mental health. Because the math model just tells me they're related. But I wanna understand how they're related. What is it? that's connecting this, right? So <clears throat> one of the themes that came out is the chronic threat that food insecurity is. And the women often refer to this as la lucha, which is the struggle in Spanish or the fight, okay? Um, what they said is that it, food, having food, is an everyday worry. It makes me want to cry, it makes me sad. So what we found is that women would talk often about, I might have food in the morning and be able to fill their bellies up before they leave the house. But immediately upon cleaning those dishes, I'm worrying about how I'm gonna put lunch on the table. It's constant. And there's some interesting research that's been done that's looked at traumatic experiences and how it undermines mental well-being. And for a long time, and I'm not saying trauma doesn't, it certainly does undermine one's mental well-being. But what that study has argued is that the chronic everyday gnawing stressors, the ones that never quite go away, that are always there weathering at you, have an enormous effect on people's mental health. And food insecurity is that kind of stressor in this context. Another quote, well, when we have no work, remember, informal economy, we have no money to buy food. This makes us worried. Where am I going to get food for my children? So it's this chronic, consistent, every day, sometimes multiple times a day, worrying about where that next meal is going to be, how they're going to put that on the table. The next um, theme that came out in, that, uh, in these focus group, in the analysis of these focus group interviews, was stigma. And this is really important for understanding now why the social network didn't really buffer women um, in terms of the way food insecurity affected their mental health. So women said to us in general, food security is a private matter, okay? While one may have need, one does not talk about it because then you're airing your dirty laundry. So women had a fear of sharing with other people that they couldn't feed their children because this was such a central part of their social role and the role that was so important um, for their identity. Um, that, and, and the way it was treated in this context is that you're a failure if you can't feed your children. They were then worried that if they talked about it, people would gossip and talk about their, their being a bad mother. Okay? And so they had to keep it secret so they couldn't share that with just anyone. 
Distress over tapping a social network, again for the same reasons. It is best that I ask for credit at the store. I went with women to the stores. I went with them when they asked credit. I saw what this is like, okay? People look at them like, oh, here comes the loser again. She's gonna ask me for food. I'm gonna, maybe I'll give it to her today. They get the certain look. Um, it is best that I ask for credit at the store, but it sucks, you know, because they assume that I will not pay, that I'm a lost cause. So again, they're feeling like a failure here. So they're not gonna let their kids go hungry. And so this is interesting here. They can go and tap a social network to get the food and put it on the table, and they will do it. Women would go and beg for food from fishermen. They talked about all kinds of ways they got access to food. But while it solved the problem of putting the food on the table, it undermined their mental health at the same time. And that has significance for poverty, because when we think about food bank usage in the United States and the stigma that we associate with food insecurity in this context, we might think we're solving the problem by putting food on the table, but you may be exposing women to ridicule, and they may be worried about how they're being perceived, and that is then undermining their mental health where they're using a resource that we think is helping solve the problem. And we have to think about those things. And this is where the ethnography helps us understand that, so we can think about that, okay? Um, and then the social isolation. I don't want to see anyone. I don't want to leave the house because I don't want to have to deal with it. I only want to stay closed in my bedroom with my child and not leave. So then you see them cutting themselves off from any social network they may have because they don't want um, to expose themselves and they're so depressed over their situation. And then the last thing I'll talk about is the fulfilling of their, their role identity, or which I have mentioned, I mentioned earlier and how important this is. This is the most important job. You know, we all have social roles. I'm a university professor, I'm a wife, I'm a daughter, right? We have different roles. But if we're asked to put them in a hierarchy, the ones that mean the most to us go up at the top. And nothing is higher at the, for these women than being a mom. They always put it at the top. That's their most important role. And being in a food insecure situation makes them feel like they fail at fulfilling that role. And that has major mental health implications because that's the most important role you've got. Um, so the women would tell us, um, like they say, as long as there's food in the house for the children, they have full bellies, there's tranquility in the home. So a lot of times when you don't have food insecurity, another way in which it undermines mental health is it causes a chaotic situation in the house where there's fighting, children crying, and that is stressful. Um, so to have a tranquil home required that you had food. That was the primary thing you needed to have. Here are other quotes that come from the focus groups. One hears the children asking, and one cannot solve the problem. So you feel as though you are on the verge of madness, because they begin to cry. They are asking, and you don't know where you're going to get it. They're wanting food. So women are in the home with these kids. You know, the, the, the dad might be gone. He might be trying to make a living doing whatever work he's doing. He's not exposed to this sort of chronic um, situation that women find themselves in. And then they have the responsibility on top of it of solving it, right? You feel a desperation, an impotence, to see that our children ask us, and we do not have. And again, we're talking about food here. And then this quote really kind of gets at this idea of the role identity. Sometimes I feel bad, because perhaps my son wants a better mother. And perhaps it is not me, because I cannot give him what he needs. So it shows you the ways in which women are experiencing this. And it's tied to the roles that they have. And one of the really interesting things that I found in this study, and, and it overlaps again with what you hear from women in the United States, that these are kind of universals here, is that while women are living in a structure where there is very little work, when there is work, it pays very low wages that don't even allow you to really put sufficient food on the table. They still blame themselves. They adopt this sort of self-blaming narrative they don't ever look up at the structures and say, the state is failing me. Um, the conditions that I'm living in are undermining my ability to do this. They know that to some extent, but they internalize it and blame themselves. And this has devastating effects on the mental health. So I'm gonna skip this because this is just a summary of sort of how this multidisciplinary and this, I should say, more important for this study is this um, mixed methods approach allows us to get at the answers to these questions. That you use the big, bigger sample of the households, you do surveys so you can gather data on a larger group, and then you dig in to try to really understand the lived experience through other methodologies. And that's what we did in order to get the kinds of data we needed to, to get at these questions. So I'll just kind of bring this home for us just so that we can see um, and think about, perhaps together after this, um, what is the same and what might be different? And what does this mean for the ways in which we try to solve this problem in our own backyard? 
So in the United States right now, 12.4% of households are considered to be food insecure. That's 40 million people. And the people who are most at risk are children, senior citizens, uh, rural populations and minority populations, and I get this off of um, I got this off of the internet because I wanted the most up-to-date data. These maps are from 2019. And in Ohio, the problem is bad. It's above the national average. Um, the rate of, of food insecurity in Ohio is 14.5 percent. That's 1.7 million people. That's one in four children. Okay, um, Franklin County is worse than the actual state which was actually surprising to me because I study in Nicaragua, and uh, those of you who study here will probably say you should have known that. 16.5% um, in Franklin County. And the issue here is, another, is just like Nicaragua, it's an issue of access. It's underemployment, stagnant wages, and then the rising cost of living. So people are working, they are bringing in an income, but it's insufficient to put the food on the table that they need to feed their family. Now, a lot of work in the United States has been done on the physical aspects of this, and we know that there's a correlation between food insecurity and obesity in the United States. And in um, Ohio, we have higher than average for the nation rates of obesity among adults as well as among children. 17% of Ohio children are overweight or obese. Okay? And we know that that maps very well onto food insecurity. But the mental health part of it we haven't studied as extensively because we haven't studied this as extensively anywhere. Um, and I wonder to what extent what we've learned in Nicaragua will actually map right on top of what we're going to find here in Ohio. And this merits um, definite research in our own backyard. And I want to you know, get students right here at Ohio State working on this problem here. So I just want to mention that because of this goal, we developed a new degree in the anthropology department in medical anthropology where students can get a BA or a BS degree. And it really aims to train them to think in a critically and holistic way, to learn mixed methods, to learn how to conceptualize human biologies, which is what I was trained to do, is to study human biology, in context so that we can understand how the environment, the social environment, the biological environment, the ecological environment are shaping our bodies. Uh, to be able to speak and work in, as a member of an interdisciplinary team so that we can tackle big problems because they're never going to be tackled by a single discipline. We must work together. Um, and then to complement the, the, the ways in which biomedicine has excelled in our, in our society, which is its strength of diagnosing disease. But what we can add to that is understanding illness, to understand people's experience with disease. Um, that is what, how we're going to improve healing. Okay? And that is how we're going to help develop solutions that will be to prevent these things from developing in the first place. And mental health is a disease. So I want to acknowledge my collaborator, Kami Schmier, who is in the sociology department, our collaborators at the National Autonomous University in Leon. Um, of course, the Nicaraguan women who participated in this research and were so open. Um, the Science Sunday team and all of you for coming out on Super Bowl Sunday. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Barbara. That was fascinating. I think we have time for a few questions. Um, I, yeah, you cannot see anything. I'm going to move over here because I, I can if I move no, over no, here. No, I, no, I can see. So. Okay. Uh, question for Barbara. Yeah. Was there a, a pre or, and post questioning or how long did it take for people to be comfortable enough for you to ask them the questions? Did you just go there and ask or did it take you X amount of time to establish to, to rapport. Get to, that, to get to that relationship. Sure. That's a great question. So the question is, did it take time to be able to develop the rapport needed to do this kind of intimate type of research? So it normally would. But the advantage that we had and what allowed us to hit the ground running is that we work with our Nicaraguan collaborators who've been working in these households since 1992. So when we showed up, people were ready to talk about it. And the other thing, too, is that while this is a sensitive issue, this is real life, and women were more than happy to, to, to basically tell us what was going on. Um, so I found them to be more open than what I was expecting, but the answer would have been it would have taken us a while to build that rapport. The benefit we had is that we work with an incredible team of Nicaraguan scholars who had done that groundwork, so we were able to roll in. And so when I showed up in people's houses, they were kind of like the novelty of having this crazy American woman running around um, speaking Spanish with my hideous accent. Um, but uh, they were more than happy to have received me in their homes, and that would have taken longer had I not had that collaboration. Good question, yes. Oh, got two over here, all right. Uh, you can go first. 
So you mentioned um, in the citation earlier in the slides, it said that you had a paper that was published in 2016 and a paper that was published in 2020. Mm -hmm. And in between that time, the political situation in Nicaragua deteriorated mm -hmm. uh, pretty significantly. Yes. So I was wondering if that had an impact on the data and if you saw people getting pushed um, from being food secure to being more food insecure as time went on. Okay, so I'm going to answer that too. So he's asking, um, many of you may know that Nicaragua has gone through a lot of political turmoil in the last few years. And um, the articles there had dates of 2016 and 2020. So she's asking, did we see a deterioration over that period of time? So the first is that our data come from the 2012 and 2013 survey. So it's all pre-political strife. So even though the paper took me until 2020 to get out because of all the other things that I'm doing all the time and other papers I'm writing, um, it's still based on the same data set. But that's a good question. We do know that food security is deteriorating in the country. Um, and that's mostly because of huge amounts of job loss. So already it was bad. You saw the data. I showed you how bad it is. It's gotten only worse. Um, so there have been serious uh, declines that people are reporting, but there are no data to back that up. So no one's done another study yet. But we're in the field now, and we will collect these data again now in 2020. So we will be able to, we're going back to these households, and we are asking about food security. So we will know uh, the answer to that question in the next, say, eight months. Um, my question was, how, uh, from your research, like, how big of a role does uh, Western, like, uh, like, you know, multinational corporations, because usually uh, they use the American government to try to get more access to the resources in poorer countries mm -hmm. like Nicaragua? How much? Did that help them gaining most of the land there? So most of the land, the issue with the, the countryside around Leon is that it's owned locally, or it's, loaned by, it's owned by Nicaraguans. It's not owned by multinational corporations. It was used a while back as a cotton growing area. And the amount of pesticides that were used in that area have deteriorated those soils quite a bit. So the agronomists at the university there talked a bit about um, the fact that that land is no longer as good as it once was. This is a volcanic area. I don't know if you noticed that in any of the pictures. So we're talking about volcanic soils here. So some of those areas can be very rich for agriculture. Um, that land has just made itself into a smaller and smaller number of people's hands. So they own large tracts of land. And they grow mostly today corn and peanuts that go into the market. Um, the corn, a lot of times it's used as, as feed for animals. It's not even necessarily always used. For, it's not for human consumption. Um, and the peanuts go out into the global market. Um, and so they're not growing the crops that, people, that are the dietary staples or that people are just growing for their own consumption. Um, people will build a, a small house on the property, and they'll basically just uh, keep squatters from coming and taking over that property. And then they'll get some, of, some, of, some money for doing that. And then they can use a small plot of that land to grow some things, but not a lot. Yeah. Can you speak to that trend where it was decreasing worldwide in terms of food insecurity and then we're now on an upswing? What's, what's going on there? Probably a lot of things that economists can speak to better than I can. But um, one of the biggest things that we are definitely seeing is that um, we've got increasing rates of, of wealth accumulation. So we're seeing more and more people slipping into these predicaments of having not enough. Um, an accumulation of wealth in fewer and fewer hands. That's part of it. Um, I'm not talking about areas that have like been prone to like a drought or a recent environmental event. Certainly those things occur. This is just a sweeping um, global pattern. So this has got to be related to more global economic factors than it is any localized factor. Because we're not just seeing it in one place. We're seeing it across the board. And Latin America has really started to slip. Because it was doing pretty well there. And again, this is a region that has grows enough food. So this is not a place where they're not growing enough food. Yeah? Um, so where do you see your research going next, either locally or in Nicaragua? And then from that, what solutions would you propose to more effectively alleviate food insecurity? So <laughs> um, in terms of future work, right now I'm starting a new NSF project on a little bit of a different topic that's on the microbiome and water insecurity in Brazil. However, I have a new collaborative uh, a f a 
new collaborator that I'm very excited about who came to see my talk today, and I see her right here, Dr. Ingrid Adams, who is a nutrition scientist. Um, she works locally, and I'm hoping that as time goes on, we are going to be able to build something that's going to address these questions. She also works internationally like I do, so we're not 100% here. But I think that so much of what we've learned, what I have learned with my colleagues um, from this study could absolutely be replicated here in the Columbus area and in the state more broadly. I mean, in Appalachia, we have major problems with food insecurity. Um, so I'm certainly, we're open to that, and we just started a collaborative lab where we're going to, we're cross-training students. I think, what do we have, six, six in there right now? Um, so this is uh, graduate and undergraduate students who are interested in nutrition and health outcomes in general. Um, and we meet on Fridays now, and we are getting everybody plugged into a project so that they can learn to work with data and analyze data and do honors theses and things of that nature. And then hopefully we can start thinking about uh, some local work that we can do that will allow students right here to do research right here at home. Um, and then you had a second question for me. Yeah, I just said from your research that you've done this far, if you have any suggestions in terms of ways to more effectively alleviate food insecurity. Oh, I have. <laughs> I would suggest that we start paying people the wages that they earn. All that wealth that we have out there, it's made by people. They just don't get it. So I think in Nicaragua, that's the solution. Pay people what they need to live, and you won't have food security. The food's there. They need to buy it. Yeah. You touched upon it. Uh, my question had to do with the black water. And I know that you just said that you were going to have this NSF grant <laughs> talking about that. There's a lot of communities in Nicaragua that have you know, black water. Mm -hmm. Did that enter in at all in, your, in the university or your questionnaire for the research in terms of food insecurity? And, so the question's about black water, so contaminated, unsafe water. Um, this is a great question because I was oblivious to thinking about it when we designed the study back in 2012, right? And now when I think about it, because of all the stuff I've read as I prepared an NSF grant that was more focused on water than it was on food, and people are starting to write articles. In fact, I just, we have something under review right now that I work with collaborators who are more water security folks, is thinking about that nexus of where food and water insecurity come together. And I think in Nicaragua we may have some of that, um, because think about this, for example, as a, as a group here. You know, we use water to both make food, to grow food, but we also use it to prepare food. So if you don't have enough water in your house, you're going to make different decisions about what food you cook. Because if you have to boil something for forever and you don't have enough water, you're not going to make those kinds of choices. You're going to make different kinds of foods. So we are just thinking about that now. So I feel like Johnny come, you know, I've kind of come to this l later. But it's the, it is the big deal right now. So every, you can go into the literature now, and you're going to find all these papers that are starting to come out on the nexus of water and food security. So people are really starting to think about it and, and trying to integrate both of them together, because it's probably a double whammy. I mean, it just exacerbates the problem on both sides. So thank you for that question. Yeah, and there's a reception afterward, and I'd love to chat, so. so we had, there was a question over here. Um, in terms of the gender inequality, so <laughs> my lived experience in the United States is that mothers and fathers both have shame around not being able to provide mm -hmm. for their children. And seeing that the women own or earn most of the money in the household. In, like, in, in that percentage of the households. In the, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, where, is, where is that kind of not worth... Where is the gender inequality coming from? Is it like religious or just cultural that you would not value the person who's making the most money in the house enough to also have shared responsibility for providing? Like, why are the women taking all that on when they should have more status if they're earning more money? So, so the question is about, it's kind of a complicated question. It has a bunch of parts to it. And I'd like to talk to you more about it afterward. But I want to say one thing that I think is actually I didn't talk about here, but is something that I'm very interested in studying. So this gets to the question that came from back there is like, what are next steps? So food insecurity is almost universally studied among women. Because women do the food preparation and usually the distribution in households. So we know the most about women's experiences. And you can lump me then in that pot with those folks, right? But in doing this work, one of the things that kind of drew my attention, but we were not prepared to deal with at that time because it's very sensitive, is the interaction between food insecurity and domestic violence. So one of the things that I think about a lot here is that it's not that fathers might not be feeling bad about it. We didn't get to talk to them so much about it. Okay? We know mothers feel really bad about it. Okay? Um, and what worries me to some extent is that if you have a situation in the household where 
you give me money as my spouse or help with the money, and then I go have to go out and make all these decisions and deal with not having enough food. If I go to you and I tell you that's not enough, and that undermines your feeling of being a man, what are the implications for me if I do that? I want to know the answer to that question. And do women not confide in their spouses about some of this because of fear that it will trigger something if it really is undermining their mental well-being as well? Because one of the ways they may express that is through domestic violence. And Nicaragua has extremely high levels of domestic violence. Um, so that is, so I think both we need data on men because I think it does undermine men's mental well-being and then the ways in which that's, that is expressed may have implications for women as well. Not that all men are going to, you know, practice domestic violence because of this, but it's a, a very under, unexplored almost area. So it's a good question. Uh, but the women really, I mean, there's a whole machismo and then the other side of that is Marianismo, which is kind of a women's identity with a virgin mother and having this very pure and caring responsibility. And so that is very much embodied in the way they experience food insecurity. But gender roles are always changing. I mean, culture always changes, right? So these things are being renegotiated as the economy of Nicaragua has shifted. But the, the, the situation with males feeling undermined and what that might mean in the household is something that needs to be explored. Last question? Yeah. What is uh, what you see the potential of being of uh, the educational, religious, and local political organizations and groups trying to ameliorate this problem? In, in Nicaragua? So Nicaragua has very limited social safety nets for these sorts of things. Uh, one of the things, so this is an interesting question, like what, what role do political, religious, what was the other one that you asked? Educational. Educational. Um, structures in the society, what role could they potentially play? So they were not doing much at this, we asked about that actually. We asked, you know, are there any resources you get from outside the household that, in terms of, that would help with food? Uh, and the answer was almost universally no. Um, but one of the things that we came, talked about at the end of doing the first round of data analysis with our Nicaraguan counterparts is the fact that the church, because people do uh, attend services very regularly and church is an important part of their life, um, that that might be a good place, churches and health posts, for some kind of social safety net when it comes to food, because those are environments where the stigma could be reduced at the same time that the food is delivered, because the church could speak to, especially the Catholic Church in Nicaragua, you have some very um, kind of progressive sort of ideology, and so they could speak to the fact that these women are in structures that are making it difficult for them to fulfill their responsibilities and trying to help them understand that and then help them with the food at the same time. And the same thing could happen with the health post if there was mental health assistance at the same time children are being measured and we're seeing the implication, the physical implications of food insecurity, that there may be mental help for mothers at that same place and then food there as well. So those, are, those were areas that, ooh, that we identified together as potentially great locations for a social safety net that could both help with the food security and not, at, at the very least, not exacerbate the mental health or potentially help with the mental health as well. Okay, well, we're